You have this strong intuitive feeling that you are just destined to build a business and a life that stands out amongst the rest, but you just don't know how to get there. I feel you. I've been there and I can see that you are another fellow flamingo just waiting to take flight. My name is Megan Shallow, social media guru and founder of BNL Media Consulting. And this is exactly what I have done through building my own beautiful empire that has become a unicorn in the social media management world, as well as a safe space for entrepreneurs to feel empowered with their digital marketing. All of this was founded on the basis of three magical words, breathe, nourish, and love. Are you ready to learn how to be that entrepreneur who shows up online and offline with confidence, has a business that makes an impact in this world, and lives a life full of connection, love, prosperity, and joy? If the answer is yes, then let's go. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fly Flamingo Fly. We have Karen Mason on the podcast with us today. She is the co-founder of Soar Project and a very influential woman in Kelowna and beyond, and I'm really excited to have her in this space. Um, her and I met at a at an organization of fundraising event at the 100 Heroes. I think I met her before she realized that she met me, um, but I knew I was supposed to be in her energy field at some point, and here we are, and we have worked together a couple for a year now, um, and I'm really excited to have you. So welcome, Karen. Thank you so much Thank for you. coming on. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that speech that you made at the 100 Heroes Kelowna back in 20, I think it might have been 2018, because that was, you were the first speaker at the event in the Yacht Club. And I think that was it. And you were talking, you were working with the Women's Shelter at the time. Yeah, that was when I was executive director with Kelowna Women's Shelter. And I had the opportunity to address an incredibly enthusiastic and philanthropic crowd for that event, which was fantastic. Yeah. And I have some fun news for you. I think they're coming back. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that the other week because I still um, donate to 100 plus women who care right. um, and support that organization, which means we support various charities in the community. And I was thinking about the other one and thought that's great if it's coming back. I mean, COVID put a dent in so much of our lives. It really did. And that was just the 100 Heroes Kelowna was just getting lift off when uh, everything started to shut down. And I'm so excited. I just got a text message yesterday, actually, asking if BNL wanted to take part again, because that's how I got introduced. Uh, they asked if I could help run the social media. And of course, I said yes. It's like, tell me more and how can I help? And so, yeah, that will be something that you and I will both be participating in again, um, I am sure. And But today, we are here to talk about you and the SOAR project and the amazing work that you are doing with um both with the University of British Columbia, as well as your partner. And so tell us a little bit where, what is the SOAR project? How is it going? Um, and how did you get to even starting the SOAR project? I feel the story, the story leading up to it is so powerful and really inspiring. So I'm excited for you to share. Do people want to listen to me talk for 90 minutes? Because, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm getting up there in years and my career's been long. So if we do, I'll try and do like the condensed version. Um, and I am, I'm a fast talker, so we should be okay. Um, so um, I'll kind of go backwards and start at the beginning. My background is actually in journalism. I did a post-secondary degree in journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. And I spent the first 10 years of my career as a working journalist, mainly broadcasting, worked with CBC television and radio in Ottawa, Halifax, and Vancouver before moving to Kelowna 
And soon after moving to Kelowna, I shifted into doing uh, public relations and marketing communications work as a consultant. So I started my own small consulting firm and had come to the place where I knew that the kind of marketing and communications work I wanted to do had to align with my values. So I called it values-based public relations. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but that's what I... That's what I came up with anyhow. But so I did a lot of really interesting and fun work with organizations with whom I felt aligned. So um, one of the key ones was Disney Club Penguin, who were just launching at the time and were not part of Disney yet. And so I had the the fortune of meeting with the founders and um, working with them to do all their public relations and marketing for the first number of years, including through the purchase by the Walt Disney Company and some pretty amazing experiences. So um, during all that time, I was getting into my midlife and I had a bit of a midlife career crisis where I wanted to do even more that felt value-based to me, where I felt like I could be affecting change as opposed to just doing communications work that felt good to me. I'd been doing some volunteering with the Kelowna Women's Shelter and had done some previous work with another nonprofit, Junior Achievement of BC. So I decided I, I wanted to do more. And I mentioned it to the volunteer coordinator at Kelowna Women's Shelter, who I was working under at the time. And she said, Karen, The board is doing a complete restructure of the organization. They're going to hire an executive director. You should apply. I'd like to work for you. Wow. And I thought, well, I haven't been an executive director, but I am interested in doing something different. And I think I could do a great job. So I I shut up the critical voices in my head and I made an appointment to have coffee with the chair of the board and the vice chair of the board. And we had a great meeting, great conversation. I pitched why they should hire me. And at the end of the meeting, they said, well, great to meet you. We'll be posting the role in a few months. We'll let you know. (laughs) And I went home and I thought, yeah, okay, well, I tried. Good for me. But they posted the role. They did let me know. And I successfully competed. So I was executive director with Kelowna Women's Shelter, working directly to support a team of 30 staff in wow. helping women and kids fleeing um, intimate partner violence for just over six years. And during that time, I um, had left a more than 22-year marriage and was, like so many single people, online dating. Mm-hmm. And one day after thinking I was never going to meet the right person who could meet the various and very strict criteria I'd put in place, I swiped right on Tinder of all places, as did a wonderfully smart, handsome, tall gentleman uh, named Paul Van Donkelaar, who at the time was working as a professor at the University of British Columbia, studying brain injury in athletes. So we started dating fell madly in love almost immediately. It was wonderful. He's a wonderful guy. I just got chills. (laughs) And a few months later, I read an article about uh, the connection between brain injury and intimate partner violence. And here I was working, running a shelter. This had never come up before. We didn't have training on this issue. We didn't know it was really a factor. Although when you think about it, it totally makes sense. Um, So I saw this article and had my light bulb aha moment. I immediately forwarded this to Paul and said, what the are we doing studying athletes? We need to study women. 
this is a plague in our society. We need to study women. So Paul was able to secure some anonymous donor funding, and we started a collaborative research project investigating this intersection between brain injury and intimate partner violence. And it was really a collaboration between his employer, University of British Columbia, Okanagan, and mine at the time with Kelowna Women's Shelter. So it was this incredible confluence of events. And I still get shivers when I think about I it. Because, like, would, would we have met otherwise? I, I don't know. And, yeah. and yet through that, um, we developed this project and eventually came up with the name SOAR, which is a loose acronym. It stands for Supporting Survivors of Abuse and Brain Injury Through Research. Mm-hmm. And we worked on that together. Um, and I did that as part of my role with Kelowna Women's Shelter for a couple of years And then I decided it was time to move on from my work with the shelter and uh, focus my efforts on the SOAR project. So I've been doing that for the past couple of years. And and then last, just about a year ago, I was approached to work with Third Space Charity, which supports uh, mental health programs for young adults in our community. And it's a halftime role. So I took that on. So I do that some of the time. And then I wear my hat with the SOAR project the rest of the time. So it's it's been a, a busy uh, 35 plus years of career, but I'm delighted to be where I am now. And I it's wonderful to be doing work that aligns with my values, feels meaningful, and, and and has demonstrable impacts on other people in the world, which is really, it feels good. Yeah. Do you feel like everything in your life, up and down, good and bad, led you to this place right now? What you, Absolutely. What you're doing? Like, Absolutely. I, I will, yeah, I will say so many times, I mean, life is life. I will never, I will never categorize a day or a week or a month or a year as good or bad because you can have the best thing happen to you ever that week. And then two hours later, the worst thing. So, you know, um, I've had all all happens for a reason. Exactly. And, and I mean, not necessarily in the moment for a good reason, because we all have this stuff and especially now in the pandemic, but I, I look back at all the pieces of my life, all the experiences, all the people I've met, the things I've had the opportunity to do, the places I've I've had the opportunity to travel and explore, every single piece of it has played a role in where I am now. And I feel so privileged to be doing work that feels meaningful and feels purposeful. Um, it, it it matters to me, and particularly in my in my older years, I actually feel like I've learned one or two things along the way. So it's nice to feel like. After years of imposter syndrome, which I think most of us can relate to, whether we admit it or not, yeah. I'm finally at almost 55, starting to think there are a few areas where I actually maybe know a little bit about what I'm doing. So that's nice. <laughs> you definitely do. And this uh, this conversation is coming at a perfect time. Yesterday, we just had International Women's Day, and a lot of conversations come up on social media around... Um, just empowering women, being grateful for all the women and all the support of both men and women to support women moving forward. Um, what is like, what was your experience even just being on social media yesterday, looking at everything? How does that day land for you? I try not to be cynical about it. Um, it is of course, as, as a woman who's been part of this fight for so many years, it can be frustrating to think, why aren't we celebrating women and the contributions they make to this world every day of the year. Why do we have to have something that occasionally can feel a bit performative for some? Um, 
at the same time, it's kind of like Valentine's Day. It's kind of like the Hallmark holidays, right? I'm not a fan. They're completely constructed, marketed. It's all about commercialism. Everyone has to do a post about it on the day. Right. At the same time, if if Valentine's Day as a thing means that someone who might not normally think to purchase flowers for someone else or tell someone else how much he or she or they care about them, then I guess it's a good thing. So International Women's Day, I think, is similar in that it creates conversation that might not have been happening. It raises awareness about the continued inequities in, in our world in 2022 um, and the continued horrible treatment in so many ways around the world of women. So I, I, I celebrate that and I celebrate the energy. There was such great energy on social media yesterday. And even in our offices, we had one of our team who's now on maternity leave. Um, she totally coincidentally had planned to come visit with her new baby, her four week old sweet baby boy. And I had brought flowers for her and for my other female coworker, just as a international women's day thing. But we went and had this great coffee and the energy was beautiful. And I thought, here we are, three powerful women who can make life with this newborn and on International Women's Day. It just felt, it felt really right. Yeah, I, I think that was, that was my takeaway from yesterday too. Um, it's always, it always comes up so fast. It's not ingrained in my brain, like Valentine's Day and Christmas and stuff. So I'm like, oh gosh, right. Even I'm in social media and I'm just like, okay, yeah, okay, it's a thing. Um, I've got it as a reminder for next year. <laughs> um, so I don't forget, but the energy on the space and even just seeing both men and women celebrating the women in their lives and honoring that, I think was a really good place. It's always a great place to start. And like you said, even though it feels like a trend and it's just something that happens on social media, it still does change the energy of that day. And people do see that perspective. And so with the work that you're doing with the SOAR project, it is really focused on women um, mostly. Would you say like one majority? Yeah, we, you know, we have to be real. Violence happens in in in, in the context of all relationships. It happens um, in LGBTQ2 plus relationships. It happens, you know, men being violent against women, men being violent against each other, women being violent against men. It happens in all those contexts. At the same time, given a variety of factors, including misogyny and the patriarchy and, you know, just the real statistics, women are more often hurt and killed by men. So we really decided in terms of this project to focus on that demographic. Um, Also, in terms of science and research, there's been so much research done on male brains and men's health and little comparatively speaking on women's brains and women's health. So we also thought that was a really important piece of the work because one part of the work we do is specifically, you know, neurocognitive research into women's brains and how they're affected by brain injury and how that affects their ability to function and long-term implications and that sort of thing. So those are a couple of reasons we really decided to focus on, on women. And what are some of the results that you've come across in the research now? Like with SOAR Project, you've, how long, how many years has SOAR Project been up and going now? We're heading towards six years since, since we started collecting data for the project. So the project has three key phases or buckets that 
everything we do kind of falls into. The first one is explore. And this is the journalist and marketer in me. I love alliteration. So it's, yeah. So it's explore, educate, empower, and everything we do fits into those categories. So the explore phase is the part my Dr. Paul loves the most because he's a neuroscientist. He likes to prod and poke and figure out why the brain does this when you do this. So that's really what he would call the pure science. Um, That's where we explore how often brain injury is really happening in women who've experienced intimate partner violence and uh, how does it affect their neurocognitive function? So the work we've done in that so far 92% of the women who have gone through the research project have absolutely shown signs and symptoms of experiencing at least one, often multiple brain injuries from intimate partner violence. And it absolutely is affecting their neurocognitive function. It's affecting their abilities to make fast um, targeted movements in some of the tests we've done. Um, There are definitely repercussions in terms of levels of PTSD and other things. So the research that's out there on this topic of which there still isn't very much. There's way more than there was eight or 10 years ago, but it's still nothing compared to the work that's been done on sports concussion. Um, That research has similar numbers that as many as, you know, 90, 92% of women who've been in intimate partner violence have probably also experienced a brain injury. So the numbers are shocking. And yet we're still, we're still really mainly only talking about athletes, you know, football players and hockey players. Um, And when you consider that women make up half the population and statistically a third of them around the world will experience intimate partner violence. And the most recent numbers in Canada, it's actually just over 40% reported incidents. So we know it's higher because we know women are disclosing this all the time. Um, So it's, it's massive. This is a massive problem. It's really a bit of a hidden public health emergency because brain injury is really an invisible injury. And so that we know that many of the women who have experienced a concussion or other brain injury from intimate partner violence um, don't even realize it. They, because living in an abusive relationship is their normal, they are used to waking up in the morning feeling dizzy and they're used to the fact that they forget things and they're used to the fact that they just have insomnia or they believe their abusive partner when he says it's their fault because they're just stupid and they're not a good parent or, you know, but in fact, they may be dealing with long-term implications of brain injury. So it's a, it's a massive problem. So in the explore phase, that's kind of what we've been looking at is really figuring out how often is it happening and how does it affect people? Of course, if you figure that out, you want to do something about it. So the educate phase is really about making change to our system and our levels of knowledge out there. When I was working in the shelter system, again, this was not something we really knew about, not something we talked about, not something we had training in. And yet as frontline shelter workers, you are interacting directly with women who've probably experienced this and you're trying to help them. So how can you help them really if you don't understand they might have had a brain injury and there are certain specific things you could do to help them. So the educate phase, we've developed training and materials specifically to help support education and workshops and other training for not only frontline shelter workers, but really anyone in the system who works with women. So we're trying to get education out there for our CMP officers who show up first at the scene of a domestic violence call, paramedics, doctors, nurses, judges, lawyers, social workers, and shelter workers. So that's what the educate phase is all about. 
And then the empower phase is really about once everyone's educated and someone says to me as a survivor, you know, have you ever considered that you might've had a brain injury from this? And that's what all your challenges are from. Then what? So the empower phase is about exploring and testing and gauging the um, efficacy of supports and services in the community. And how can we ensure that once we identify a woman may have experienced brain injury from intimate partner violence, how do we help her? How do we get her in touch with services that will help not only her uh, physical health, but her emotional well-being and her functional ability to continue working and parenting and going about life as a healthy human being after she's left an abusive relationship and is still dealing with a brain injury. Why do you think this conversation is so important slash why do you think it hasn't come up sooner? Because this is not a new topic. This is not a new, like we've known that this intimate partner violence has been around forever. So why is it, has it taken this long? Nobody wants to talk about the fact that humans do this to each other. I think there's there's a desire to sweep it under the rug. I mean, we're, we're way better than we were even five, 10 years ago. You know, the Bill Cosby situation, the Harvey Weinstein situation, Gian Gameshi, those sorts of high profile, disgusting cases have brought this more into the public discourse, both among, among women and men. So that's great. But I think there's still so much stigma around it and so much misinformation. I think people would prefer to believe that, you know, survivors of intimate partner violence um, are fit into a certain demographic, less educated, young single mothers, perhaps they don't have great jobs and they're, they're not living in the best situations, that they're living in poverty. But this is so far from the truth. This happens in every demographic, every level of wealth, every age range, every type of family. And... I think we're starting to get that message out there, but there's still a lot of discomfort in, in, in talking about something like this because who wants to believe that this is really happening at the rate it is. And because it happens behind closed doors, it's a little easier to pretend it's not happening because that guy who is the pillar of the community, he coaches his kids soccer team. He gives to charity all the time. He's the life of the party and the most charming guy at the, at the neighborhood barbecue Nobody wants to believe that behind closed doors, he can be a very, very different person and and have the most abhorrent behavior. So we have to get past what we want to think about people and understand what might really be going on. But it goes so much deeper than that. It's it's our society, which is so so immersed in, in misogyny and the patriarchy. And the fact that how we raise our boys into men isn't serving them and notions of toxic masculinity. And there's, I could talk about that for way too many hours, but it's a big problem. And yeah, that conversation is a whole other podcast episode or like five. Um, But with, and so like this impact, it's bringing the conversation to the public, but also there's like, where do you see the impact of all of this research coming down to the women? Um, like there is that empower phase of empowering the women. Do you find that these findings are actually helping women understand what's happened to them and what absolutely. is the results of that? Yeah, absolutely. We've had uh, many of the participants in the research have, have expressed that they felt empowered and vindicated mm-hmm. to, to put a label on what was going on for them. To, to, to be able to say, huh, 
So maybe he's wrong. Maybe it's not that I'm stupid, that I'm less than, that I'm forgetful, that I'm a bad mother. Maybe I actually am dealing with the physiological implications of something he chose to do to me. There's, a, I think, a lot of power in that and, and this notion that, okay, it's actually not my fault. And I'm if I am broken, it's my brain that's broken. And maybe there are things we can do to fix it. So that's been, that's been really gratifying to see women come to that place because to live with the kinds of challenges they're living with um, and to try to come up with ways to function when they're trying to parent and they're trying to live, but they can't do things the way they used to. And they don't know why, and they don't know what's wrong with them is so incredibly frustrating. So to put a name to it and maybe some ideas or tools that they can use to feel like they can function better. It's, it's, been, I think, helpful for a lot of our participants. And I think just getting the word out to women in the community to just plant that seed that this is what can happen. And it happens very commonly. And here's why you should be concerned about it. Maybe can play a role in helping women, some women to think about leaving sooner than they do, or to take, you know, take certain types of action if they're in an abusive relationship or after they've left one that might've never crossed their minds before. Right. And then, and you're also educating the first responders, I guess is it's kind of the word that's coming to me based on the people that you've worked with. Um, how is this research impacting how they approach the situation? Because I think that's a really, that's a really important step. And so what have you seen in that regard when you've started educating those people? Yeah, there's, a, there is like, like with when I first read this article, you know, years ago, there's this, there's this light bulb moment and it's, it's kind of amazing, but some have never thought about it and have never considered it. But we know that often when first responders arrive at a scene, you know, if a, if a woman, if they're trying to interview a woman or find out what's happened and she's confused or her story keeps changing or she's not really paying attention or she starts screaming out for no reason. If you didn't think about brain injury as a factor, you might think she's having a mental health episode. She's using drugs. She's oppositional and difficult. So helping them understand that they should be working through this lens of brain injury as a factor, as well as uh, trauma-informed practice, I think is that's one of our key priorities. Getting ourselves in front of those people, it's definitely happening, but it's, you know, it's in, in fits and starts. We've been very fortunate to do some work um, with um, some health professionals and, you know, all the ones we do work with say, okay, yes, I'm going to start using this in my practice now, which is great. Um, we are just starting to develop a virtual reality training tool that will be used with RCMP. And the hope, of course, is that it's effective and then gets gets pushed out across the country. We're going to be piloting it with a couple of detachments. And that will really look at an officer arriving on the scene of an intimate partner violence situation and being faced with what what will have included some kind of brain injury, whether by concussion or strangulation, which is incredibly common and very dangerous. Um, so we're very excited about that project. We also have a new member of the SOAR team who's doing a PhD, who is a paramedic. Our hope there is that we can get some training in with the paramedics. We're also working closely with the province on creating some new training for frontline social workers. So when you're, you know, you're a frontline social worker and you're tasked with child protection, if you understand 
that the women you're dealing with may be dealing with challenges from a brain injury caused by their partner. There's a whole suite of things you can look to do to help them as opposed to perhaps thinking this mom isn't fit to parent. So we need to remove these children. So we're we're making these little, you know, bits of progress, but in my perfect world, um, the connection between brain injury and intimate partner violence, how to spot the signs and symptoms and how to help people, it should be required parts of the curriculum for nursing students, social work students, anybody wants to be in policing, law, you know, all those things. So that's someday would be great to get to there. I was going to say, would you say like one of the wins would be when SOAR project or the research that's been done under the SOAR project umbrella is cited in a textbook? That'd be cool. But it's funny in the end, like there are very small pockets of researchers doing this work right now. There are a handful in Canada. There are quite a few, quite a few, you know, I don't know, 10 to 15 in the United States, some in Australia and some in the UK. Um, It's still a very small group of researchers and clinical practitioners who are focusing on the topic, but the knowledge base is growing and the awareness is growing and we all work together. There's a lot of collaboration. So everybody's pulling on each other's work and promoting each other's work because in the end, I can't speak for everyone, but we don't care if it ever has anything to do with us or sore. We just want to spread the word so that more people know about this issue and that it becomes a really clear part of how people do this frontline work with women and how women are served so that they can have a better chance at better futures. Yeah. That's uh, and in comparison, I mean, you said there's like 15 in the States. If you were to compare that to how many people are doing research on concussions with athletes in the States, what would that number compare to just for oh. people who aren't familiar with the academic? I don't know. Thousands. I mean, <laughs> yeah. No, it's insane. Um, I wish I had the, I don't have the figure in front of me, but Paul's done some comparisons by searching out publications. Um, you know, they they have, the academics have this thing called PubMed where they can search all the academic publications on different topics. And if you search for sports concussion, there would be like hundreds of them in, you know, a month or two. But if you search for, and if you search for intimate partner violence, same thing, lots. But if you search for brain concussions or brain injury in intimate partner violence, you get like, you know, 20 maybe in the course of a whole year, which is more than there was 10 years ago. So Paul has been working in this field for his whole career. And he thinks that the area of brain injury and intimate partner violence is where sports concussion was 15 or 20 years ago. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, uh, distance to make up. And we also have to consider the fact that, you know, there's a lot of money in sports and sports marketing and sports events. Um, So there's a, a whole different level of, value placed on athletes. Yeah. It's not right, but it's, that's how it is. How it is. Yeah. And you're mentioning how it's like, you got to like spreading the word of this conversation has been extremely important with just with all of the research across the entire world. I know you've traveled a little bit for conferences and stuff, but of course, since the pandemic hit that kind of stopped things. And so social media and online the online way of communicating has been a primary um, driver for getting the word out there. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And so 
that was definitely a subject that I wanted to bring up because I'm an acad- I'm an academic through and through, even though I haven't been in school for a while. I loved research. I thought it was the best thing in the world. Loved stats. Um, I think I knew who Paul was actually because I had a lot of friends in human kinetics, and I went to UBC Okanagan. And um, with I never thought about social media when I was doing my like research and my honors degrees and stuff like that. Like it didn't even come up in conversation, but since I've met you, we've talked a lot about it and it's been really interesting to see what platforms are really important for spreading the word of academic research. And of course, Twitter has become one of the main ones. And so I did want to talk to you about that because I know Instagram, like the back of my hand, I love that tool so much. I love that platform. Twitter, I know it, but I don't know, I don't know it in the academic world like you do. So I would love for you to kind of share your experience being someone who's in the academic world, using Twitter to connect with others, um, and what you're what you've learned along the way, especially with your marketing background as well, and how that's transformed things for sore. Yeah, I think, you know, social media is such an incredible tool. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. So social media did not exist in my, um, you know, younger years and even young, younger career years. Um, so I've seen it. I've seen it show up and then just blow up into this huge thing. And, you know, despite the complaints about social media taking over our lives and the negative implications, I think it has so much power for good and, and to connect people around the world. And I've seen that in my own use of it. I love social media and I'm still, I'm not, I use Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, TikTok. I just, I haven't wrapped my head around yet, but I think I can use the excuse that I need a little time because I'm, I'm older, but, um, I think they're incredible tools to connect with people authentically and to share information and to educate and to get people excited about things and, and get people on board as advocates and, and to activate, you know, one of, I'm not, I'm an activist, I'm not a protester walk down the street with a placard activist. I activate via social media and via other platforms and one-on-one in meetings because that's what works for me. And I think social really gives a great opportunity for people to do that. It's interesting to see how the world of academia uses social media, given I don't come from an academic background, um, but my partner is a professor and has been in academia his whole career. Um, Academics, from from my understanding, tend to use Twitter, you know, they they push stuff out or they share things. They don't necessarily know how or try to use it to create engagement to get things back. They really seem to push things out. And um, academics are, I think, just starting to understand how important plain language is and coming down from their ivory towers and not just developing um, research and projects and manuscripts for the pure purpose of learning, but, but doing these things in, and then finding a way to get them out there so they can help people and, and spread the word. So it's interesting to see that change when I, and when Paul and I were first uh, dating, we went to a social event and I met one of his colleagues who since become a dear friend and who works with us on the SOAR project. And I was told her specialty was knowledge translation and I heard a little bit about this thing, knowledge translation. And, you know, as a former journalist, I said, well, couldn't all you professors, instead of having knowledge translators, couldn't you all just learn to speak English? 
And <laughs> right, because it's it's basically, I think initially this whole notion of knowledge translation was all the stuff the academics are doing is done in language that isn't very accessible. It's very in-depth, you know, and it's it's very academic. APA. <laughs> right. But it's yeah. supposed it's supposed to help the world somehow. And so they it's like they created this whole sector called knowledge translation of academia. And their job is to take research and make it palatable for people. And right. it, it's just super, it's super, not palatable, but understandable. So it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty, pretty interesting. So I think, I think you see on Twitter, you see the academics who get it and either they've hired people or they just understand and they use their research teams and they're really able to do a really good job of disseminating in, in sort of bite-sized and understandable ways, the work they're doing so that it can appeal to a broad audience. But then you have the ones who are really just appealing to other academics. Right. So I think we're seeing more and more of them starting to use Instagram and being a little more uh, broad about how they're approaching things. But I think that's taking a little longer. So I found, I found for the work we're doing, Twitter has been an excellent medium for reaching out to other researchers um, and to other organizations like frontline community organizations doing work for reaching out more broadly to people, people who work at shelters, uh, women who are in abusive relationships or not. I'm finding that Instagram and Facebook are the best platforms for that. Yeah. And that I think is really powerful too, to be able to create content for both and to be able to connect to both. And I just had this image in my head at maybe in like 10 years, every professor is going to have to have like a, a branded Instagram profile and they're going to not know what to do because they love hiding behind their computers and in their research. And it's like, no, you got to take photos and be out there and um, start having these conversations and do reels and TikToks, <laughs> which are like, what did I sign up for? Yeah. Um, and so that is definitely, I would say that's where academia will probably go in the next 10 years where they have to, they don't have to, but it's going to be the most impactful research, they will have a brand behind it in some way, kind of like what you've done with SOAR Project. SOAR Project yeah. does have a brand and there are people behind it and they're on social media and some are more active than others, but it's still like a hub that um, people can work alongside. And would you say SOAR Project is mainly BC right now? I know you've done a lot of international speaking events, um, but is there a plan to expand outside of BC for the research side of things? I think we've we've partnered with others. Um, you know, Paul Paul has partnered with um, Carrie Esapenko, um, who was out of Rutgers University in the United States, and uh, he's done some work with Eve Valera, who's really the pioneer in this topic, and she's at uh, Harvard Medical School in Boston, um, and we've worked pretty closely with her. Um, but definitely, SOAR for now is very. It's I mean, certainly our hub is is Kelowna, and we're based in BC, and much of the research we're doing is here. But we're always looking to collaborate with. Other others. And, and we always are uh, trying to spread the word. It's funny on the, you know, on the whole branding side of things. Yeah. Um, I think part of how we're going to see things change is because of this newer demographic of professors. You know, Paul, like me, is he's heading towards 60. He, there wasn't social media when he was a kid or even a young professor. Um, but I think a lot of the assistant and associate professors coming into academia now are in their, you know, late twenties and into, into thirties. So this is, this is something they know they are digital natives as they call them. So yes. I think, I think that's part of what will drive that change. But when we, um, 
how we ended up getting a brand for Soar, we'd been doing the work for, I think, just over a year. And we did a very substantial grant application and were successful to get a large amount of funding from the Federal Department of Women and Gender Equality. And um, very exciting because that's really allowed us to expand the work and keep going for a few years now. And then we, we, we found out that they wanted to do an actual media event to announce the funding and to highlight the work we were doing. And of course, with my background in journalism and marketing, I said, yeah, no, we need a name, we need a brand, and we need a website. By the time we do this launch, we must have these. So developed, you know, the logo and the brand and the name and all of that, because I knew, I thought for the launch, we can't be the Kelowna Women's Shelter, University of British Columbia, Okanagan, research project into brain injury and intimate partner violence. Oh gosh, no. (laughs) Right? So... So what, but it was so fun developing this because this is the kind of work I'd done for years and, and Paul just, it really, he had a hard time wrapping his head around the need for a brand. Why would we have a website and what do you, social media, why would we have our own social channels? But that was a few years ago now. And, you know, he'll come back from an event and say, so-and-so came up to me and said, oh yeah, Soar, I've heard all about you guys. And he'll say, yep, Karen, the only reason that happens is because you insisted we had to have a brand. So, you know, your gift, your gift is, well, your gift is words. It's writing, it's speaking, it's, uh, it's, it's the marketing side. And that's what the academic world needed to get going. Otherwise it would have just stayed stuck behind the scenes. Exactly. And I think it's, it's been a, you know, that's another piece of the the partnership for Paul and I that works so well, because I am not an academic. I am not, you know, I'm not a traditional researcher, but my background in, in journalism and marketing, I do know how to write a compelling story. I know how to be authentic and real while still being factual and educational. So we've been able to combine his incredible expertise and skill in, in research and neuroscience with my background in communications and marketing. And I think that has helped soar, ha, soar. Ha, ha. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And the <laughs> fact that you two met through online world, like I just, it's, it's serendipity for everything. Um, everything happens when it's meant to. And it's just the story of the how soar project has come to be. I mean, it really lands for me. Um, and also the, like the power that's coming through, even just in the last, like, since we've worked together, it's just been really amazing to watch your team has grown. Like the academic team continues to grow. You're finding that more students are wanting to take part in this research as well. It is, it is very cool because when, when we started the work, I said that to Paul, you know, he would get as a professor and as someone who's known for his expertise in um, neuroscience and concussion, he will get often hear from students who want to do their graduate degrees with him and they'll come to him. And I remember at one point he was getting all these applications and they were all wanting to do sports concussion. And he was really moving into the, um, the SOAR project at this time. And he wasn't sure. And what should you do? And I said, you know, Paul, someday people are going to come to you because they've heard about SOAR and they want to do this work only. And this past September, we had five new PhD students start with Paul in the lab. Every single, every single one came to him because they'd heard about the work with brain injury and intimate partner violence. And that's what they wanted to focus on. So we have, and they're all, you know, mature students who've had careers. So we have one who specifically is doing her PhD project on 
brain injury and intimate partner violence in the queer community. And there's been no research done on that. So that's really exciting that that's happening in Kelowna. The, the virtual reality tool for RCMP, that is a former RCMP officer. She was in the RCMP for 25 years and she retired last year. And I met her at an online conference about strangulation investigation. And she heard about the project from me in that conference and came to Paul and said, I want to do a PhD and do more on this research. And then we have this, our, our paramedic who's come to the project to do, to do um, his work. And another who, whose specialty so far has specifically been about um, hormonal changes in female brains as a part of brain injury. And another one who's working specifically on the implications of um, exercise in supporting healing from brain injury. But all of them, and we've got another one coming, uh, hopefully if she gets some, some grant funding in January from Toronto, and all of them are coming specifically because they want to work on brain injury and intimate partner violence. So that's just, it's so, so cool. To see. And yeah, like, and yeah you're, you're not having to push it. They're just coming. No, like, to, to the point where, to the point where I'll, I'll say to Paul, okay, how many can you supervise efficiently? And do you need to hire someone else to help you supervise? Do you need yeah. more with the postdoctoral um, fellows to work with you? So we might have another one of those starting too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. just exciting. And these are to see all these incredibly smart, driven, passionate young people who are coming into this because they want to affect change in the world. Not purely, I just want to do a PhD and learn something. They're doing it because they want to affect change and they want to help women. And that's massive. That's so massive. And it's all, and the brand and everything has like helped with that. And I think that's so fascinating. Um, And the fact that marketing, like the marketing, even though it's not, it doesn't, everyone thinks marketing and it's like push, 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 sell, sell, sell. And it's, it's not always about that. It's just about creating a name for a community that exists. Yeah. Thor has gotten huge lift off and now people are coming knocking on your door um, and they're getting grants and they're doing all these things, which is allowing Soar to grow. So that is so wild. And Soar, I think we've had this conversation in the past. Is it considered a nonprofit? Like would it fall under a nonprofit or it's just a research organization? So we would, it's really, I guess, a program of research that exists under, under the banner of University of British Columbia Okanagan. So University of British Columbia Okanagan is technically a nonprofit organization. And so SOAR, SOAR under Paul and UBC as his employer will apply for grant funding that then funds the, the research and the students who are doing the research. Right. And with like, I know you have had experience with nonprofits in the past and BNL gets nonprofits knocking on our door a lot. And we always want to be able to help any way that we can. Um, is there any advice that you would give to nonprofits based on all the work that you've done um, and other researchers and academics, but for social media steps and for marketing steps, because their budgets can be a little bit different? Um, what would your advice be to them when they're starting to lay a foundation to build a really strong marketing plan? Yeah. I, I mean, my advice would be do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, and you know this often when, when budget is an issue, when, or if finances are cut back, marketing is often one of the first things to go, but particularly when it comes to social media, that expression, you have to spend money to make money applies. So you have to spend the money to get the eyes on your stuff, which will then lead to more donations and more more grant funding as well. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Because it's about, it's about people need to have you 
in their top of mind awareness. When they're thinking about, oh, it's getting to the end of the year and I want to make some charitable donations for my, you know, my tax deductions. You want them to think about you. And if you're not out there in their face to an extent on your social media, sharing your stories, sharing your successes, um, they won't think of you. And Certainly, when I first started working with Kelowna Women's Shelter as a volunteer, that was my role. I volunteered doing all their social media for them. Now, this was nine years ago, and so social was not you know, quite what it is now, and it was something I was able to do even with somewhat limited capacity compared to people like you and your wonderful team. But um, to see the growth in, in the social media audience and engagement from then to now, and the power that has when you stay connected to an audience, nurture engagement, tell authentic stories, and vary the types of stories you're telling and the types of posts you're making, it can be so powerful. Um, Like, I will get, I'll get contacted. Who was, there was one recently. With SOAR, we had an article that came out in the New York Times Magazine a couple weeks ago, an extensive piece. um, And we had a tiny mention, which again, we don't care. We are so thrilled that the word is getting out. But somebody in British Columbia read that article, saw my name in that article, searched me out personally on Facebook and sent me a friend request because she's someone who lives in somewhere up north in BC. And she used to work in a shelter and she's written a book about shelters. She saw it in there. She found me on social. Now we're Facebook friends and maybe there'll be some kind of partnership or collaboration. That's the kind of power that can really help a nonprofit grow and find new donors and supporters and advocates. And I think investing the time in getting a presence, even if it is first just with a volunteer to do it for you, Right. It's an, it's an incredible, incredible thing to do. And it can only grow. And especially when you're starting out, it doesn't have to take a ton of time or effort. And as long as you ensure your posts are varied and aren't, aren't all just here we are, give us money that you're sharing authentic stories that you are um, speaking to people as people, uh, it it can be so effective. Yeah. I mean, what were the three E's again with SOAR? Explore, educate, empower. I mean, those are great content pillars, like for anything. (laughs) And so I think that's an amazing opportunity for all nonprofits, for researchers, even if you are doing research and you want to get the word out there, use the power of social media to do it. And your, your community is your biggest supporter and it just spreads from there. Just like you said, like, um, you, we've been, you've been doing stuff for SOAR. It's, you were mentioned in the New York times. That's the thing. Yeah. I was quoted. There was was a quote from me in the New York Times. It's funny, you know, back in the day when I was taking my journalism degree and seeing myself as a journalist, I I knew I wasn't going to do print journalism, so I wouldn't have thought about the New York Times. But but this, you know, this was a journalist and this was a very long piece. Long form journalism is not as common as it used to be, unfortunately, due to budget cuts and people's lack of attention span. Um, This is a very long form piece. The journalist originally contacted us at least two years ago, before I think even before COVID. And I probably over the last couple of years spent 10 or 12 hours on the phone or on Zoom with her in depth on this whole topic and the work we were doing and suggesting all the other researchers, you know, particularly in the States, because it's an American media outlet, 
who she should talk to. And when she first contacted us, I think she was working for Mother Jones magazine. Mm-hmm. And then then at the next time we talked to her, it was a different one. She's a freelancer. And yeah. then the next time it was, okay, this story is not dead, Karen. Now we're going to do it with the New York Times magazine. So it was... Uh, it was great to see the final piece and to see how she'd incorporated all these other researchers with whom we work, who are doing incredible work, plus, you know, powerful stories, horrific stories of women who've experienced violence. Um, so that, yeah, for us, it was just just so gratifying to see it in such a massive publication that has huge reach, but kind of cool that SOAR as an, as an entity was named too. Yeah. That was, that That's was neat. wild. And also yeah. like to have something in the New York times, as a, any business, it's like, it's one of the golden, like top notch, like, yes, we did it. We got into the, one of the biggest PR opportunities. Uh, so that's really cool. So congratulations on that. Um, that's a huge win for SOAR and only more to come, I am sure. And so for those that are listening, whether they're academics or entrepreneurs or anything like that, how can they help spread the word of SOAR project? How can they get involved? What can, like, what would you say they could do in order to help be one of those pieces that can help connect SOAR with the right people? Honestly, I, w- I tell everyone, please follow our social media, which yeah. I imagine you're happy to hear that. Obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I tell everyone, follow our social media because, you know, we try really hard to make it educational, not just promotional. And so if you want to learn more about the intersection of brain injury and intimate partner violence and some of the facts and research happening on the topic, if you follow our social media, you will learn things. You won't just be bombarded with sore is awesome, sore is wonderful, because that's not what it's about. And we're not trying to sell anyone anything except knowledge and awareness and, and maybe some activism if they're interested um, because when people follow, then they'll share. And it's, it's like this old shampoo commercial that only the people like me who are like maybe over 40 or 50 will remember. I think it was for Breck shampoo. And it was a woman on the screen and talked about how using the shampoo and it, it, my God, it changed her life and her hair. And it was, um, and, and she'll tell two friends and she'll tell two friends and that kept happening and new pictures of people and so on and so on and so on. And that's, I think how social media works. It's, it's like, Everyone tells everyone else. And then suddenly somebody in, you know, Africa has heard about this thing. And you're like, oh, how did that happen? I only shared it to my audience of, you know, a thousand people. Exactly. Yeah. The power of social media is real. And it's sometimes hard to be like, oh, this like turns into this. It's not about that. It's some, it's about bigger, like just spreading the awareness and making those connections because you never know who's going to need to see it. And serendipity works her own magic. So social media helps with that. And it's hard to quantify, you know, I think like for you as a business person, it's, it's one thing to, to be able to communicate, um, you know, since we last did an update update, we've seen an increase of this percent of followers. There's been this many likes on your posts and these types of posts have been shared the most, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually it gets to a point where you can't measure the impact. You know, it's, it's vague and you can't, you can't say like with a theater, I know we had 500 bums in seats last night and here's what that means. Because you passed a point, you can't track where it's gone and it could be immeasurable, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So the trust in social media is great, but you got to be on it in order for it to allow it to work its magic. So 
Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, the SOAR project is an amazing project that's being done in, B in BC at UBC Okanagan. And if you are curious to learn more, of course, follow the social medias, but also go check out the website and click around and see what's going on. Um, the work that they're doing is wonderful. And you can always, I'm sure, reach out to Karen through the website and she would be happy to provide even more information. If you need also, it. also a little plug for BNL because we've been happily working with BNL to increase our social media footprint and our, get our messaging out there. And it's been so wonderful working with you and your team. Ah, we have learned so much from you and we are grateful that SOAR has been a part of our umbrella because we love having you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Karen. And we will see you guys next time on the next episode. Have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Fly Flamingo Fly with BNL. We are so grateful you stopped by and we hope that something from today's conversation ignited the inspiration you were looking for so that you can keep moving forward towards the life of your dreams. This podcast was produced by BNL Media Consulting with the amazing help of Podigy Podcasts. We'd love to hear your takeaways from this episode, so be sure to leave us a review as well as give us a follow on Instagram at BNL Social. If you need any help with your social media marketing, feel free to visit our website at www.bnlmediaconsulting.com and we would be more than happy to support you. We hope you have an amazing day and we cannot wait to connect with you again next time. Have a good one, everyone.